From the studios of WBEZ in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we hear part two of our interview with Phyllis Tickle, who talks to us about the great emergence, the revolution that is reshaping our society and the church itself. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin reviews Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War, the new book by Rita Nakashima-Brock and Gabriella Latini. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Phyllis Tickle. Dr. Tickle was the founding editor of the Religion Department of Publishers Weekly, the international journal of the book industry. She is the author of over two dozen books in religion and spirituality, most recently, Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters. Also, The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why, and The Words of Jesus, A Gospel of of the Sayings of Our Lord. In 2004, she received the honorary degree of Doctor of Humane Letters from the Berkeley School of Divinity at Yale University. In 2009, she received an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters from North Park University. She is a lay Eucharistic minister and a lector in the Episcopal Church, and she is the mother of seven children. And with her physician husband, she makes her home on a small farm in Lucy, Tennessee. Phyllis Tickle, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's very kind of you to have me, in fact. At several points, you've mentioned the Protestant Reformation, and if we think about the Protestant Reformation in terms of technology, one of the things that we can note being parallel to the rise of Protestantism is, <laughs> is the rise of book culture. That's absolutely true. And then if we, if we look throughout the 20th century, we can, we can see uh, another sort of strange shift from face-to-face worship, and then in the 20s, we come to experience people beginning to worship through the new medium of radio, and then in the 1950s and then on into the 70s and 80s, we, we have the advent of television, and many begin to have their worship experience by watching a television program. And I've been reading some literature on this, and it seems like a lot of those people, as they move from face-to-face to radio to, to, to television, they didn't think that they were having a simulation of worship. They thought that they were having an, an authentic worship exactly. experience, actual worship. Exactly. Absolutely, so absolutely. how does this, this new advent among us, and I'm going to point now to social media and the World Wide Web, how are these new technologies affecting worship, and how do they factor into this great emergence that we're discussing? I am so glad you asked that question. Uh, you know, so rarely do I get a chance to speak to that. And uh, it, um, it, too, is one of the things. You're absolutely right on. Uh, when we went to radio, it truly was, uh, uh, you, you know, he came into, and it was always a he, uh, almost always, Amy Simple did some. Uh, he comes into your living room, and, and he speaks to you with all the intimacy of a, of a good voice and a good program, um, and you can be comfortable. You don't have to sit in some pew in your Sunday best with a collar that's hurting your neck or with high heels that are hurting your feet. And you had this sudden sense or this gradual sense that you were praying with people all over the world who could hear this man's voice and offer this prayer with him. It was an enormous intimacy. And I can remember as a child when Bishop Fulton Sheen used to sweep onto the television screen with that. I mean, nobody ever played vestments any better than Fulton Sheen. Uh, 
what a sense of exhilaration. And I was in a church that transcended both the walls of our home and, and the walls of a church. We were in a different place. And there is a progression. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a progression right on up to where we are right now. And a minute ago, I spoke about cyber church. And cyber church is as much a part of this as, as any, anything else you could want. It's best seen by most people, I think, uh, if you go into Second Life um, and look at it there. But what it means is that millions of our fellow Americans are now getting their principal or their soul worship experience um, on the Internet in virtuality. Now, there are ways to do it in virtuality and sometimes um, Facebook, and they're two different things. I should make a distinction. Um, virtuality um, it happens when something like Second Life, for instance, um, when uh, there are actual sacred spaces or sacred parts of virtuality um, where one can go to worship. I'm Episcopalian, as you know, Anglican. And uh, in Second Life, we operate uh, what's called the Cathedral on the Isle of the Epiphany. Uh, and um, there's some 800 congregants now who worship there every week. I think there are, I believe, four worship services now. I think there's a clergy staff of five, if I'm remembering correctly. The whole thing is run under the in, phys uh, in physicality, under the auspices or the Episcopal oversight of the Bishop of Guilford. Um, and uh, avatars, uh, people, uh, normal people in physicality, uh, pick up an avatar and enter Second Life, and through their avatar they worship in what looks and talks and walks and quacks a lot like a normal Episcopal service or an Anglican service. And it's fascinating. Uh, what it means, of course, at a practical and a pastoral level, and priest after priest is very quick to tell me to be sure I say this, is that folk, um, many folk, who cannot uh, go physically to church, who cannot have that experience, um, can do so on the net, can do so in virtuality, and how wonderful that is. And um, uh, folk who perhaps would not uh, feel comfortable uh, in a worship space can do so there in private. Now, it raises all kinds of questions. Um, can an avatar priest consecrate um, pixel sacraments? Uh, and give them uh, to avatar parishioners. Uh, I mean, this you know, can an avatar priest hear confession? Uh, can he give absolution? There are all kinds of questions that are uh, having to be worked out, but it's absolutely there. The other part of this is what you say about the social network. Um, I, I am fascinated. I don't think there's anybody with enough smarts to catalog all of the blogs, the religious blogs uh, and prayer blogs and, and worship blogs that, and sites that are presently on the net. I think you'd have to be a genius to be, even begin to list some of them. But I will be 80 my birthday, and I have friends, colleagues, contemporaries, who uh, routinely uh, enter into a site for their prayer life. That's, that's where they pray. Uh, and they are uh, praying. Some of it is by Skype, but usually it's not. Usually it's by pixels. Um, and so it gives a whole new meaning to the church universal, uh, to the church non-corporeal, non-sighted. Uh, and it leads to what Bruce uh, Member at uh, California calls uh, neo-tribalism, though he uses the term in a slightly different way. But um, So now my congregation is my Facebook page. My congregation is 
my blog, my congregation, is my website where I pray. Um, uh, as you may or may not know, I, I keep the divine hours. I, I keep uh, the offices uh, every three hours. And uh, I'm amazed at the number of sites out there where people every three hours stop and share a common breviary um, without anything orally or audibly being said. They are praying quietly together. So it gives uh, gives a whole new... Scott McKnight, a very prominent theologian whom you probably know, Scott McKnight in, 1906, in, in 2006 said at Westminster Seminary, and I never will forget it, that when the dust dies down, one of, or perhaps the principal uh, things about em- the coming of emergence Christianity is going to be in the field of ecclesiology, that is, in the field of how we worship, of the liturgy which we use, of, of the... Uh, of of the, the thing that is the churchiness of church. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for the Christian faith globally in the 21st century. Well, let, let's continue with this thread, because we live in a culture where scientific explanation has largely replaced religious explanation for most phenomenon. And when I was teaching college students, I used to point out to them that even even the, the, the devout students in my class, if they got sick or if they got a toothache, their first impulse would be to go to a doctor or a dentist and not to call a priest. Right. And I pointed out to them that this was an example of just how deeply science had taken root Mm-hmm. and had taken the place of faith as a bedrock of their worldview. That's right. Now, has this shift to a basic comfort with scientific thinking affected emergence Christianity? Is that a, is that a bulwark of emergence Christianity? You know, Christianity? I, it, interestingly enough, I think it has affected established or inherited church more than emergence, because emergence just assumes it. Uh, it's, it's very difficult sometimes for uh, older folk to understand that people 40 and under were born into the great emergence. They were born into emergence sensibilities. They were born into everything that's a characteristic sociologically, aesthetically, intellectually, uh, politically, economically, uh, that is characteristic of, of what we are right now. They can't change having those sensibilities. So they grew up with the assumption that, you, you know, after what, 1939, penicillin was actually first postulated, and by 41 it was functional, you know, after 41, you get a cold, you, of course you're going to call the doctor or you're going to go to the pharmacist. You're not going to call a priest, for goodness sakes. You don't want pneumonia, do you? You, you go get the pill. Uh, and, and they just grew up on that assumption, whereas inherited church, as you just said, inherited church hasn't necessarily made that leap or that accommodation. They're still using yesterday's forms, and there was nothing wrong with them uh, except that they just don't speak to people who have grown up on this side um, uh, of what's happened, this side of post-modernity or this side of emergence, whatever you want to call it. The place I thought you were going, uh, however, is I, I say it constantly, and I don't think I'm, I must not say it very clearly because people look at me blankly, but inherited church Christians, uh, that is everybody from the beginning up until about 40 years ago, you know, we'll say, I, I, I lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord my God. And that's absolutely true. Emergence people, whether they are emergence Christians or emergence Jews 
or spiritual but not religious or unaffiliated or knowns, I don't care where on the spectrum they fall, they will say, I lift up mine eyes through the hubble and, oh, my God, which is vastly different, vastly different. It's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it is to fall down before the absolute wonder of what's out there. And we didn't have that 40 years ago. We didn't know it. We had no access to it. And it has changed everything. Where I see it as an observer, where I see it more significantly perhaps um, than anywhere else in all of this, is it's changed the whole nature of spirituality. Um, Now, whether you're a believer or not, you look through that thing, and of course that's just a figure of speech, but but you look at where science is. You look at uh, not only cosmic science, but but creation itself, evolutionary science. Uh, you look at all of it, and you see an amazement. You see uh, something out there that the term God doesn't feel quite sufficient for because we've used it for other things. And, and so you, you say... Uh, increasingly, I find emergence Christians will say it's logos. Uh, you know, call it logos. Give it, give it some, or it's spirit, or it's the magnificent, or it's the transcendent. Um, it's as if our vocabulary hasn't quite caught up with that. Oh my God! Experience that happens when you look through a microscope, or up through a telescope, or up through something like the Hubble. Um, and it true, it has made it all right. To talk about spirituality uh, without having to talk about religion. It's almost as if religion were a tin can that had exploded and let all of its contents out and lies kind of in shards uh, around the uh, the exploded content. It's a huge part. What you put your finger on is a huge part of what's going on. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for Christian faith globally in the 21st century. Well, you mentioned that I just put my finger on something, so let's let's keep my finger there for a second. <laughs> Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, Sir Isaac Newton, these are names that we now associate purely with scientific inquiry. But if we, if we look at them in their full history and the full history of their writings, their deep reflection into the physical world was fueled in just about each case by a deep religious reflection. Right. So Isaac right. Newton, for example, he wrote more about religion and theology than he did he did about physical processes. And he was only studying, uh, I mean, he came to reductionism only because he was a passionate Christian, a passionate believer. Yeah. Now, why, why do you think that it is that we've lost the thread of that narrative that kept these two things together? And the, the, the more important question is, does emergence Christianity in some way return Turn us to that narrative where these two things, science and spirituality, are threaded together again. Yes. yes. Uh, and, uh, well, I jumped the gun. I'm sorry. That was rude of me. Right. But yes, of course it does. Uh, because it, uh, well, it, it, it is perfectly uh, willing to see the compatibility of the two. And for the passionate emergence Christian, uh, what, what you see when you look through the Hubble is a grander concept of God than ever that word uh, has been used to mean before. And so there, there is a conjoining. There is an excitement about all of this. There is also a freedom, and I, I think more than anything else, it's the freedom that fascinates me. There's a freedom to say, okay, let's lay aside God. Let's lay aside theology. Let's lay aside what the ages have taught us. 
and see what it is we're looking at and see if it will come home to that or see if the mystery um, in that will, will come out and infuse what it is we've now got. Um, Harvey Cox, well, yeah, let's, I'll go there. Harvey Cox, because he certainly uh, has credentials out the wazoo and credibility, um, is, is one of uh, the better-known academics who's, who's now arguing that what we're in right now, what do you call it, the great emergence, the great convergence, or the great reset, uh, which is what Richard Florida wants to call it. I love that one, the great reset. What, whatever you want to call this thing, it's uh, perhaps more, um, um, it's more monumental. Is that, I don't know if you can be more monumental, but it is uh, more analogous to what happened 2,000 years ago when we changed the era than it is analogous even to the 6th century, the 11th century, or the 16th century, uh, that this one is pivotal. And it pivots right here where you put your finger. It pivots on an expand, a vastly expanded uh, human uh, conceptuality and vastly expanded information. Technical information doubles every, less than every 10 months now. That's startling. That's startling. None of us can even comprehend what that means. This tsunami, this whatever, opens up. It, it maybe almost obviates all of the old um, theological terms, or it, it doesn't obviate them so much as it asks us to lay them aside and look at what we're looking at and then pick which ones of the old tools we will bring back into the conversation. You hear so much now about religionless Christianity and, uh, or Christianity beyond religion or Buddhism uh, after religion or, or whatever, and what those terms are struggling to say is not heresy. Um, it's not an attempt to, to throw the whole thing over. It's an attempt to break out of the old uh, parameters, maybe, uh, the old restrictions on what we could and couldn't think, and look at the wonder of what is before us uh, and, be, uh, and, 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 and accept the transcendence of that, uh, that there has been a major lurch forward. The, the other thing that we've not said, and when you were naming scientists, I thought you were going to go for Darwin, is that we've got a brand-new anthropology. Um, and there again, you've got a man who started out as a devout Christian, very devout. He was thinking of studying for the priesthood, as a matter of fact. We cured him. We made an atheist out of him before it was over by the way we treated him um, uh, because we wouldn't let him have his wonder and his facts. Uh, they didn't fit in our container. But the, uh, the, the thing is that in the emergence, there's a willingness to accept the facts, to accept science, accept the wonder of all of this without trying to superimpose on it a theological basis. But at the same time, there's a passion for God that is excited by this information, which is not exactly the same thing as starting as a devout Christian and then going forth to explore. It's almost the opposite direction with the same result. It's being excited by what's out there and wanting to explore it and bumping up against the oh-my-God phenomenon, uh, that there is something out there. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that interests me about this is that, uh, actually, I saw some figures the other day, um, that the number of avowed atheists may be decreasing in this country. It's shifting over to those who, hmm, I don't know, which is, uh, I mean, it wasn't uh, maybe two a percentage. I wish I could remember. I don't like citing something when I can't remember what it was I saw, but... Um, 
but it's something like 2% fewer uh, atheists uh, and an increase in the agnostics. That's saying something to me. I think that's fascinating. Um, and so, yes, emergence is perfectly willing. If, if this is a scientific fact, if whatever you're telling me can indeed be demonstrated, uh, can be shown uh, to be true, then it's got to be the God I worship is the God of truth. And it's got to be that it fits somewhere. Um, and so I'm not afraid of your truth. Uh, and I will, um, I will see how it fits. And if it doesn't fit, I'll just live with the contradiction. But it doesn't, it doesn't impinge on my faith. It doesn't impugn my faith. It simply increases it. And that, I think, is very exciting. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Phyllis Tickle, who has written numerous books on a wide range of subjects relating to Christian faith. Most recently, she's turned her attention to the great emergence, the cultural shift that is reshaping both religious faith and society in general. You can find out more about Phyllis Tickle and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is Dr. Phyllis Tickle, who's written numerous books on a wide range of subjects relating to Christian faith. Most recently, she's turned her attention to the great emergence, the cultural shift that is reshaping both religious faith and society in general. You can find out more about her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, then then what we should be encouraging young people entering seminary to do is to maybe look at less theology and instead study some physics and some information theory. David, right? I have said over and over again to audiences, especially when I'm in seminaries, I would not let any young person, male or female, and certainly not any middle-aged person, male or female, into a seminary uh, unless he or she had an undergraduate degree in physical science, preferably uh, in, uh, in physics, um, and as a substitute perhaps in mathematics. I don't think you can preach uh, nowadays. I don't think you can think theologically without an acute way. And, that, you know, this from a woman, I had one class in physics, all right, you know, one class in physics, and I, there were 17 of us. I was the only girl in the class, and I wasn't married yet. So uh, I laugh and say it was more applied biology than physics. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's an arrogance in what I'm saying. Uh, but I must also hasten to say uh, I read uh, perhaps more than, than one would expect or than would be normal uh, within uh, physics, granted, at the popular or lay level, at the TED level, uh, at the, you know, learning institute, uh, school, uh, course um, level. Uh, because one has to. Uh, you, you, you cannot, yes, you cannot... Teach or preach without that now. I would even maybe tentatively go so far as to say, I don't think you can worship as completely or fully or richly uh, without at least some um, awareness, without looking at science news every week, for instance, if you want to do it at a really lay level, um, uh, without looking at some TED Talks. Uh, I think that's just there. Um, it is our world, and it's a, in the same way that I suspect uh, by 15, 17, 18, 19, you could not worship um, fully without understanding what happened in 1492 when the earth went from being flat to being round. 
Um, and I mean that quite seriously. Um, you would, your worship would have been more impoverished had you not acknowledged what Columbus did. And in the same way, I suspect worship is more impoverished today if it does not acknowledge what's happening uh, in the physical sciences. And I'm dead serious about that. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for the Christian faith globally in the 21st century. Now, the little church that I pastored down south of Nashville would say, if they heard us having this conversation, uh, let's just sing the old hymns and give me the old-time religion. So what are some of the criticisms that you encounter when you teach about the great emergence, and what are more, for lack of a better term, mainline Protestants and Catholics and Anglicans fearful of when they encounter this movement? Well, I, I think the diminishing numbers is the first thing that gets them, uh, along with the diminishing endowment, uh, and, and that's perfectly normal, uh, perfectly understandable. Uh, I think, but though, before we get to the theological concerns, it really is the immediate concerns of can we keep the lights on, and wh- how are we going to pray a, uh, pay a preacher? Um, but uh, obviously, when you get to the mid-judicatories or the, the more organized or hierarchical parts of, uh, of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, you arrive at, at some theological concerns. But at the parish level that you're talking about, the small church south of Nashville, um, you know, Protestantism isn't going to go away, and we're not going to throw it away. Many of our small parishes or congregations are indeed going to um, have to merge with others, and we see that happening already. A uh, thing called Call to Common Mission, uh, which was, Lord, six or seven years of painful uh, confabulation uh, before Lutherans and, and Anglicans agreed to share congregations and share seminaries and share priests uh, or pastors, and now, what, there are about seven or eight, I think, Protestant divisions that fall under the, the call to common mission thing and can swap around. We're going to get that. We're not going to throw away traditional Protestantism. We're not going to throw away traditional Catholicism. Um, we're not going to throw away those old-time uh, uh, hymns. Um, they're dear and important uh, in, in every way. Uh, it's just that in the same way that 500 years ago, Protestantism didn't destroy Catholicism. Uh, this one isn't going to destroy Protestantism or Catholicism. And they're going to be... It concerns me, and, and I say it too much, but it's not enough to be right. You've also got to be pastoral. Uh, that is to say, in, in, in 14... If I'm going to talk Columbus, in, in 1493 or 94, 95, um, okay, the world is, flat, is, is round. We've proved that. But if you've grown up in a flat world, and that's where you formed your Christianity, you don't have to go out and accept the, the round one if you don't want to. Um, there's a place for your flat earth, um, and it's not hurting anybody. Now, a lot of people scream when I say that, but it's not. Um, and there's a perfect place. Ray Anderson, at, um, now deceased, but at Fuller Seminary, um, one of the most beloved professors perhaps in in modern uh, in contemporary Christian uh, teaching, used to say that it's Antioch and Jerusalem all over again. And he was absolutely right. Um, that Jerusalem existed right up until uh, the temple was destroyed, obviously, or the city was destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem uh, existed, and 
had one form of Christianity and Antioch had another, and they never agreed, um, but they did indeed have intercourse between the two. Uh, uh, Jerusalem sent Paul over to Antioch to see if there was anything Antioch needed, anything they could give. Um, And then Antioch sent Paul back to talk with James and Peter to say, we need some help here, boys. We need some rulings. We've changed some things about the historic faith. And they battled it out in what's called the First Council of the Church, the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, They battled it out. Uh, But they they never did agree. Uh, And yet, uh, of course, uh, each fed the other in, in significant ways. And so the little church down in the Dell, uh, the little brown church in the Dell, uh, is to be honored and loved. And as long as there are people there, and there will be young people, let's be, let's be real clear. Emergence Christians, if you go into a meeting, now are about a third as white-haired as I am. This is not uh, 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 older citizens um, are beginning to understand something's happening here. For one thing, they have the time to think about it and the impunity to think about it. Whereas the little church in the Dell or the inherited church, if you want to give it a more dignified uh, term, in general uh, appeals both to the older citizen, but specifically um, to that group of people who are between 45 and 60 or 65. Uh, They neither grew up in emergent sensibilities, nor are they old enough to um, be able to give up the the sensibilities of modernism that formed them. And so they need a religious expression, a place of worship, uh, that appertains to their values and their customs. Well, God bless them, and may it be so. Uh, And may um, many of the established uh, congregations or churches uh, or communions that do have the money find a way to make it possible for um, those smaller ones to continue to survive so long as they are useful and meet a purpose in the the kingdom of God. Um, But uh, the thing that is dangerous, the thing we must worry about or try to prevent, is the scorning of uh, either Jerusalem or Antioch, each for the other. Um, We do different things uh, within the kingdom, um, and the position of each of us is as holy and devout, uh, as God chooses to make it. Um, so it's not for us to scorn. And that's, um, that's an, I think, an important lesson uh, for some of us who, who kind of think that we are, are fasting on the ball and uh, very with it, um, to look back and remember that this is what we came from, and this still is valuable. This still has something to say uh, to us in, in every way. Well, Phyllis Tickle, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Well, thank you for having me. I loved your questions. Our guest today was Phyllis Tickle. Dr. Tickle is the founding editor of the Religion Department at Publishers Weekly, the international journal of the book industry. She's the author of over two dozen books on religion and spirituality, most recently Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters, also The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why, and The Words of Jesus, A Gospel of the Sayings of Our Lord. As I mentioned, this is part two of our interview with Phyllis Tickle. If you haven't heard part one yet, you can listen to it online at our website. If you'd like to find out more about Phyllis Tickle's writing and work, we have information and links also available on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment to follow us at NotSeenRadio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at 
Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on anything. You can go back and explore, just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scroggin reviews Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War, the new book by Rita Nakashima-Brock and Gabriella Latini. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. The ongoing war in Afghanistan is America's longest-running military conflict, and for the better part of a decade, the Afghan conflict was fought in parallel with the war in Iraq. Unlike in generations past, these dual combat situations took place amidst a heightened awareness of the effect of war on the human brain. And in addition to the psychological effects, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, we might also speak of an added dimension to the cost of war, the concept of moral injury, the damage done to the soul by exposure to violence. Rita Nakashima-Brock and Gabriella Latini, who both grew up in families deeply affected by war, have been working closely with veterans to explore what moral injury looks like and what can be done to help heal the damage inflicted on soldiers' consciences. Their recent book on the subject is called Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War. Katie Scroggin offers this review. Whatever your thoughts on the military establishment, and regardless of your position on war, whether a particular conflict or combat in general, any honest consideration of armed engagement and the forces that participate in it must take seriously the individuals involved in waging war, as well as the impact that training and combat have on those individuals. Such consideration is the aim of Rita Nakashima Brock's and Gabriella Latini's Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War. A product of the scholars' work with the Truth Commission on Conscience in War and with a number of veterans, Soul Repair brings together those veterans' stories of training, combat, and homecoming in order to examine what the authors call moral injury as it pertains to members of the military. Even though an individual suffering from moral injury may also have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, the two phenomena are not synonymous. For one thing, because moral injury is not any psychologically or psychiatrically diagnosable predicament. Rather, the authors tell us that moral injury is, quote, a profound spiritual crisis, the violation of core moral beliefs. Participating in what one considers to be an unjust war, engaging in torture, or harming or killing civilians could all cause moral injury. Such trauma is only intensified if the military at large fails to understand or even punishes its members for expressing their apprehensions, or if it fails to provide adequate resources to address soldiers' moral wounds. And a soldier's ability to confront and begin to heal moral injury is hindered even more when, after returning to civilian life, friendships formed in combat or training no longer have the intensity provided by purposeful or dangerous situations that sustain them, 
or when a soldier's family, friends, and loved ones are unable to understand or know how to deal with traumas faced in military life. In the book, Brock and Latini allow veterans to describe what they have experienced and how they attempt to face and deal with the realities of moral trauma. In doing so, the reader is presented with individuals who are much more complex than either hawks or doves would like to believe they are. For example, although it may not change peace activists' desires to end or not to become involved in war, these portraits make it very difficult to dismiss soldiers as unthinking beings only interested in indiscriminate killing in the service of my country right or wrong. And those eager for war may not want to hear that far from enlisting out of a determination to defend American prerogatives at any cost, many people join the military because they have no other financial or professional opportunities, and that many soldiers are conflicted, both about participation in conflicts and about the ways in which those conflicts are carried out. The veterans telling their stories in these pages struggle with every aspect of military life and with larger questions, such as the meaning of just war the decision-makers who get us into armed conflict, and the justifications of combat used with and within the public. One army chaplain, for example, has spent years working to achieve government recognition and acceptance of selective conscientious objection, where soldiers need not be opposed to all war to be considered conscientious objectors in a particular war. Whether directly addressed within or read between the lines of the veterans' stories, Propaganda's role in soldiers' decision to enlist, in their training in combat, and in their reception by the public is evident. Especially salient is the veterans' weariness with assertions that members of the military are heroes deserving unconditional praise. Not only do such declarations fail to honor the complicated and often oppressive decisions involved in military service, these veterans say they also provide the public a way to absolve itself from its own responsibility for sending troops to do its dirty work on its behalf, and from failing to consider or pay prolonged attention to the realities such work involves. Returning home is already difficult, and the scarcity of people able to understand what veterans are going through or to know how to talk to them about their experiences makes that return even more demanding. And so the sense that the public is unwilling to accept soldiers as the human beings they are makes the post-military world seem even more alien and alienating. It is this acknowledgement especially that proves the book is more than an empty call, as the slogan goes, to support our troops. In working to be more understanding of soldiers' and veterans' experiences and of the impacts they have on those soldiers' lives, Brock, Latini, and those veterans they interviewed are also very clearly calling society at large to its responsibility for the injuries soldiers bear in its name— for allowing soldiers to be sent to war, and then, for the most part, forgetting about both them and the conflict they're engaged in, for not giving veterans the resources they need to recover, for accepting the propaganda used to justify the sacrifice of lives and souls. The authors could build upon this discussion of propaganda's role by extending the conversation to consider the place of and justification for the existence of the military in general. How do we balance the need for defense with imperialist impulses and aggressive tendencies? How does a society maintain itself without a force of what is essentially trained killers on the ready? Should this project be expanded, the authors could address the attitudinal, behavioral, and cultural links between the general society and its military in one way by considering the phenomenon of sexual assault. 
what sorts of moral injury are inflicted by and upon a microculture, itself representative in many ways of society at large, that seems not only rife with this sort of abuse, but also slow to truly acknowledge and bring such violence to an end. These proposals for expansion of the discussion aren't criticisms. Instead, they're evidence that soul repair does just what a good book should do, namely, provide the reader not only with engaging material, but also with multiple reasons to continue the conversation and to act upon the insights we find there. It's hard to see how such a spur to further discussion and action wouldn't be beneficial both to our military and to the society that maintains it. Katie Scroggin is an independent scholar and translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury After War by Rita Nakashima Brock and Gabriella Latini. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Studio 7 at their Navy Pier Studios in Chicago, Illinois. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badenock, and David Merrill. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.